0: On the Dallas Opera Network, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble!
1: Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's Talk Radio Show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined by no one else because we're on summer reruns, the dog days of August heading into Labor Day. Next two weeks. We are podcast only. We are best of only. Not to fret, the OBS team, Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave have dug into the OBS archives to pull out the very best of season six. And boy, do we have some great stuff for you on the podcast only this week. Before we get to that, of course, a little bit of sports talk. U.S. Open happening right now. And I'll always think of the U.S. Open as the first big pro sports event that I watched as the pandemic was still shocking us this time last year. Excited to see what Oliver Camacho thinks of that. And also, college football season has started. For me, it's like elementary school. It has to start after Labor Day. There's something about starting school and starting college football before Labor Day that just ain't right. Let's talk some opera.
2: Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle.
1: We go into the OBS archives from Season 6 on the podcast this week. First up, singer-turned-revolutionary arts administrator Afton Battle has reshaped Fort Worth Opera away from the festival season format and into unconventional spaces She spent her first year as Fort Worth's artistic director finding performance opportunities in underserved communities, pushing for equity and opportunity for artists of color, and being an all-around badass. Afton went inside the huddle with Ashley and Oliver in October of last year, episode 238, if you're counting, to talk about the changes on the stage and behind the scenes.
3: The key, like points, if you will, in my life and career were when I decided to stop singing uh, and chasing that as uh, a career opportunity, which was about 2014, um, and started really focusing, shifting my focus to um, arts administration and had no luck getting into any type of arts administration position, not even the bottom level totem pole. Hmm. Uh, and I had to go uh, I had to go around the back way, really, to do that, which was going through higher education. So I have this long career in higher education. Yep. Um, and when I moved to Chicago was really the absolute turning point in my career as an arts administrator. Um, and that was meeting Angelique Power, who's the president of the Field Foundation who had an organization called Enrich Chicago, which was founded to diversify arts arts administration positions in the city of Chicago. So I came through that program and as I am a direct uh, result, graduate, alumni, what have you, of that program. uh, And it was through that program that I got my position at the National Museum of Mexican Art. And from there, it literally was onward uh, and never looked back but it took me it took a solid 10 years after having graduated with my master's to even find my way back into the arts world and um it took um another four or so years of really giving it like every single thing that I had to find this sliver of an opportunity that was given to me by uh, a woman who uh, saw the need to diversify arts administration positions in the city of Chicago.
4: Hmm. It's interesting that you came full circle from opera. And then we can see through your resume that you were with Red Clay, which is like a African diaspora dance company. And then Joffrey, which is, uh, you know, one of the country's premier ballet companies. And then um, the... Uh, Nash- the Mexican Museum of Art. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know which order those things are supposed to be in. And now <laughs> and now you're, and I don't know if I'm missing another important one, but now you're at Fort Worth.
3: One, the position I think that definitely positioned me uh, for this role at Fort Worth was my time at New York Theater Workshop in New York City, yeah. uh, which is an off-Broadway theater. And fundraising in New York City is it is no joke. It is not for the faint at heart. <laughs> so being a part of that ecosystem and that ethos really as a fundraiser in New York City is what I believe prepared me to step into this role as general director at Fort Worth Opera.
4: So the press release that we read, um, I don't want to say it was it was not a good press release. It was a great press release, but there's something about it that felt very bold some things that were said there's like things are gonna change around here and we'll start with the one that applies really to the company you know as a whole which is the idea of switching away from the festival format and more towards a studio a format can you talk to us about that and and what necessarily you you' want to accomplish by doing that
3: absolutely um as a artist myself who has been in many summer programs, Uh, which are festival programs, they work for those that they work for. And they work in cities that they work for, like Santa Fe, Chautauqua, Iowa, Maryland, you know. Um, But they don't work for other cities that they don't necessarily work for. And so I think that Fort Worth Opera had a great run at a festival season, um, being able to produce so many operas in one short you know four week period of time but also um it really stretched the the uh the patrons if you will because you had to fit everything into this four week period of time Mm. and I don't know if you've ever visited Fort Worth but um it's not necessarily a summer destination (laughs) as it gets very hot um but also um you know uh the patrons who are part of the organization and who support the organization, they they skew demographically by age and by uh, you know ethnicity, and so you have everyone who you are looking to host and cultivate relationships and just get them in the theater, you're asking them to come to three to four shows in a four week period of time. And that's a lot for a lot of people uh, financially, time wise. Um, but also the trouble that I find is, is that then you're out of the public eye, if you will, for the rest of the year. Right. They only know about you or, you know, you're, they are only focused on you from April to May.
2: And
0: so
3: then the rest of, you know, the 10 months, what do you, you know, you're out there doing things in the community, but there are no performances necessarily happening. So the move from the festival season to the stagione season allows us to have a larger imprint in the arts fabric of Fort Worth. It allows us to establish, you know, these pillars of a company that is offering a repertory, you know, type of, you know, season in the fall and in the spring. And everything that happens in the intermittent part is the added bonus, right? So it's the times that you have opportunity to really engage with the community. It is times that you have opportunity to highlight your resident and young artists. It is times you have opportunity to do children's opera theater. In addition to then when you have something on main stage, you can utilize those mainstage singers to do outreach to do advocacy to talk to donors and to you know sing at parties and all the wonderful things that we singing artists and you know musicians all around the world have always had to do so what i hope to accomplish with that is a firmer and more um, forward thought and sense of fort worth opera as a leading arts organization in Fort Worth that has the stability to sustain ourselves throughout a full year. And that has the aptitude, if you will, to engage an audience for that whole time and not just, uh, you know, April and May. And, you know, you like work everything up to April and May and then you expel all your energy and then like, you know, you have to recover from that. But to be a fully year-long functioning opera company that is bolden and embedded in the community and really giving back in that way.
0: That is awesome. Uh, One of the other things that we noticed in in that uh, press release was the phrase eradicating inequalities. Uh, It certainly caught our attention. Uh, Here at OBS, we've you know, been focusing a lot in the last couple of years on racial and gender equality in, in opera. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about how you want to approach these topics when it comes to Fort Worth? And um, have you thought about anything just as a dovetail in, you know, the COVID era of performances that you see as a an opportunity to help make some of those changes?
3: Absolutely. Um, Fort Worth Opera will not lead with our words, but we will lead with our actions. Mm -hmm. Um, And what that means to me is, you know, there's so many things floating around here, sign this, pledge this, say this, do this. And yes, words definitely do matter, but our actions are what will be sustaining us through the end of this time in which people go back to being able to do something that reminds them of normal and they forget about everything that they've said and said that they were going to do before then, you know? And yeah. so the action to me is more important than the words because I can say things all day long, but if I don't act on that, then it was just lip service. So we will lead with our actions. And that to me is providing a platform for developing art and artists and music by BIPOC and Black artists, um, providing uh, a platform and uh, the space and the breath to develop works um, that are in commission, that are being developed, that need to be workshopped, Um, that, you know, putting together a librettist and a composer, who need to meet and make magic uh, so that we have these new stories that are being told. Um, It is going into our communities uh, in the Fort Worth, Tarrant County area and embedding ourselves in those communities in a way that is authentic and genuine, surpassing anything else by needing to make ticket sales because you're doing a poor gambes or needing to make ticket sales because you're doing a Spanish speaking opera but it is going into the communities and making relationships with key community leaders and organizations and civic leaders and leaders of faith uh, you know down here in Texas everybody everybody's got faith <laughs> and making yeah. those communica- making those connections and really embedding yourself in the community so that then when you When we leave this COVID time and we're able to gather back in Bass Hall or wherever, you know, we're gathering, folks will know who we are and they will know what we mean because we've said what we said, we've done what we said we were going to do. And then when we ask them to come to our halls and to come inside, they will not only feel welcome, but they will see the representation of themselves in the audience. They will see the representation of themselves on stage and they will see the representation of themselves, you know, off stage. And that is a multifaceted thing that you can't do overnight. And you definitely can't do that without having the support of your community whose shoulders you undoubtedly stand on and who you serve. And I think that that is what sometimes we have forgotten as arts administrators and you know leaders and especially in the opera industry um, or in classical music, is is that we do serve a community and it is not just your community that buys subscriptions and make philanthropic donations, etc, but we serve the community whose life we encompass. We take up space in their life. We take up space at their schools by doing school programs. We take up space in their civic areas by building, you know, these giant halls. We take up space anywhere. And so if we're not engaging with those folks when we take up space in their life, then of course they're going to feel shut out. And so the silver lining of COVID for me is that it has completely removed barriers to access The barriers to accessibility of this particular art form have literally been demolished. And so that has provided us an opportunity to go into people's homes via these Zooms and all these other things and offer programming for them, Mm -hmm. offer programming to their family. It has also provided us an opportunity to engage with artists whom I don't think we would have the opportunity otherwise, because we weren't seeking it, to engage with him. Um, And so, you know, when I said that I am committed to eradicating the inequalities of this art form, it is by taking the actionable steps to ensure that we are recruiting equitably, that we are casting a wide net when recruiting for Uh, administrative positions that we are casting wide nets when asking creatives to be a part of a production team that goes from the director to the scenic designer to the costumer to the wigs and makeup that we're not just using you know everyone who or you know the folks who we are just comfortable and familiar with but that we're stepping outside of that because we will be and if 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 I ride out of here on a golden horse <laughs> Fort Worth Opera will be the people's company and for that we will be representative of the community that we serve
4: since you brought up your singing career do you have do you have <laughs> any stories for us about particularly inspiring collaborations maybe with uh, a fellow singing colleague or maybe at a uh, a company or with a director that really made you feel like, you know what, like, I could do this, I could, I could be in charge, I could really, I could be a leader, I understand what what this person is doing, or, you know, take it where you will.
3: Yeah, wow. Um, You know, when I was singing, I I had tunnel vision, and I was just a singer, I actually had no clue that what I am doing now was something that I could do because I had tunnel vision, I was singing, um, it was literally the Met or Bust or something in some variation, then it became Europe or Bust, Um, but I I had complete tunnel vision. And I didn't know that I could do what I'm doing now until I got in the world of arts administration and I started to see leaders who looked like me uh, and, that is, I started to see black women running shit. Mm-hmm. Bottom line. Yeah. And I thought, okay, I know what our industry is like um, as a classical art form. I, I know who has run it in the past and who, you know, how what's currently being done. But when I started to see more and more black women in positions of power running foundations running huge organizations. I went to a, here, here you go, Oliver. I went to a, um, a luncheon in New York City for the uh, Women of Philanthropy Network. And they were honoring Ruth Brown, who is a black woman and she is the president of the Ronald McDonald House. And she was accepting her award and talked about her career that is yep. extremely epic and beautiful. And she says, the only way that I got to where I am is when I would get in a position, I would make it my duty and responsibility to lift up others as I climbed higher to success. And I thought, you know what? That is what I feel is missing for Black women and Black people, period, in this industry, is, is that we haven't. A, been afforded the opportunity to do what some of us are able to do now. And we haven't had the mentorship of others to lift us up while they climb. And it's not that we want to have their position tomorrow, but we want to be able to get to the level that they are at while they continue to rise above and it is having that mentorship and having someone to say, you know, this is, this is how business is done or this is how, you know, how things are run or this is just what to look out for. Or these are the steps that these are the steps that you need to take to get to where you want to be. I never had anyone tell me that. And I had to figure it out on my own and it was by trial and great error (laughs) that, you know, I got there, (laughs) but you know, I looked at people like Ruth and I was like, what did she do? I wanna do that. And so if I can say like anything to anyone who is in or looking to become an arts administrator, who is a woman, a black woman, a black person, a person of color, is find people like me who are willing, and I am, to mentor others in the ways of getting their foot through the door or to open up the door so that you can get a foot in. And, you know, if you're savvy, like I am, all you really need is a big toe in. And once you get a big toe in, then it's over, you know, and you just move from there. So that is like, you know, something that I want to be able to offer myself as a mentor to those who are coming after me, because i want I want to be able to leave my tenure here and hand over this beautiful baby to someone else and say, "Here, this is yours now
0: that is just I'm just so delighted to hear about this um, you know we're we're talking a lot these days about sort of what's what's next, what's, what's next for the future of our industry, uh, how are we going to make things work, and we've, we've talked a little bit about that, um, can you give us some examples of other folks in, you know, the visual and performing arts that are kind of giving you hope for the future of our business, and these could be music companies, they could be non-music arts companies, who are the folks that are catching your eye right now?
3: Oh, yes, um, the folks who are catching my eye, um, are, there's this organization, um, called Black Theater, uh, Black Theater Coalition. Um, they are catching my eye. Um, they are doing great work. Um, and <laughs> it's kind of self-serving because they're catching my eye because, um, I've worked with them and <laughs> continue to support some of the work that they do. But within that, uh, you have organizations like Broadway, um, Broadway Advocacy Coalition, and you have organizations like Muse, and you have organizations um, uh, that are uh, taking this moment that we're in, which is a civil revolution, if you will, and identifying what they do best and then elevating that. There is a wonderful, wonderful artist, um, director by the name of Awoye Tempo, Um who is brilliant and a great, great artistic mind. And she has some really wonderful things that she is working on in the directing realm of of life. Um, I definitely love to watch and keep up with Karen Slack and what she is doing. She has, this is a woman who has gotten into, she has found her niche Mm. and you know, she is a great singer and a consummate artist. But she has really found her platform on how to bring levity and reality and how to bring people together during this time through her conversations. Someone else who has really shaped kind of what I'm looking at in terms of music and in terms of possibilities is... um, Anthony Davis, uh, after he won the Pulitzer, I was like, I want to know everything about Anthony Davis now and go. Um, (laughs) If I could mount a Malcolm X, I would uh, 100%. Uh, If I could mount a Central Park Five, I would um, absolutely without regard. Um, There are also some really amazing women who are out here in the world making things happen. Black, white, brown, otherwise, um, Elorne Maker is doing some really great things down in San Antonio. Sue Dixon is doing some really fantastic things in Portland, and so watching these women and these artists just make space in their own world has been, you know, really great. And if you all don't follow him, um, Kenneth Overton does a really fantastic show on Monday evenings, but the work that he is doing with uh, Black opera film is really spectacular and the tribute that he put together for Jesse Norman's 75th birthday was so moving and so poignant and um, very much needed and just beautiful and classic and elegant. Um, So yeah.
4: That gave us a big list. To <laughs> to yeah. <keep> up with. <laughs> so I have th- I have three things. One, yeah. one um, of course we'll be watching Fort Worth to see what you're doing over there and we know that's that it. down the line people will be saying, "Oh, Afton Battle was the person who brought me up and I just I I, I attribute my career to her." We know that's in the future. But we are watching Fort Worth. Two um, Dorothy Rudd Moore's Frederick Douglass Opera. We do not have a complete recording of it yet. And it would seem like a company who wants to eradicate the inequality would put that on their list of things to do. A hell of a project, yeah. And also because she has become a friend of the show, my third thing, uh, Odaline de la Martinez's Slave Opera Trilogy which was workshopped, um, at Opera America a couple years ago. There's a video of the first part of it, but, um, it's, it sounds great and it feels very timely. Uh, both of these operas do. So anyway, let's see if we can make that connection for the future.
3: (laughs) Absolutely. Um, I would, you know, we just last week, um, did a libretto workshop Mm -hmm. that was part of the frontiers series. And, um, in workshopping new pieces by uh, uh, six different librettists. And um, it was, it was a wonderful lesson in storytelling. Cause you were, you know, they are just reading the script hmm. and you could hear or let your mind really go into the, imag- the imaginative place and either feel or see and hear the musical arc of how some of these things would line up yeah. um, and What I really would love to see Fort Worth Opera do, and we have the power to do it um, and the direction to do it, is to take something like our Frontier Series and dedicate it to um, uh, BIPOC artists and dedicate it to those creatives. And so it is something that we have in our power to do um, because we have the uh, the power to do anything as people, as humans, but also the platform to give breath and space to those stories that deserve a space and a breath to be told. So whether it's Frederick Douglass or Slave Opera Trilogy or you know some of the beautiful pieces that we heard last week, to bring those to life in their full fruition and then... You know, essentially commissioning them for a main stage performance is really, really where I want our frontiers um, initiative and series to go. Listen, I'm all about being first—not yeah. um, necessarily the first in the race, if you will—but uh, I'm all about being the the thought leader and the industry leader and pushing the envelope and making everyone else catch up. I don't, I don't play catch up. Awesome,
1: <laughs> I love it. Again, digging into the OBS archives from season six for this end of summer podcast for you. Now, November of 2020 brought us a pivotal moment in history. The OBS got Christine Gerke on the show. This is a clip from episode 241 when the Heldon Zoprano joined our nasty women of opera episode. (laughs) and We're still giddy about it. Miss La Gerke. Inside the huddle with Oliver and Ashley to hear about her friendship with the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg and about singing Brunhilde in a Mustang.
2: You know, it's very interesting. Just this morning, I saw a friend of mine sent me an article. um, Classic FM had posted something, and it was about the idea of retraining uh, for all of the artists in the UK. Just retrain, rebrand. And I'm so offended on their behalf. It is... It is so much work what we do and another friend of mine is currently in Paris working on a job and she is from the UK and she wrote and said that she was astounded because they are saying that you know essential work can happen and apparently rehearsals, recordings, performing is considered essential and they have notes. So To me, there is a great discrepancy as to what is considered essential in our lives. That said, to think of what we do as a hobby. Look, it's a great hobby. It is a great hobby. I encourage everyone to go and sing in the shower, get outside, join a choir, do your tap dancing. I still try and I'm disastrous at it, but I love it. The arts enrich our soul, no matter how we come in contact with them. For those of us who decide to do this for a living, and we try to do this for a living, holy cow, the ups and the downs uh, are epic. Um, And it's funny, when I I talk to young singers, they're like, what's your best advice? And I said, well, you know, a lot of people used to say, you know, if you can do something else, do it. But if we're here in this situation, It's because we can't do something else. It's because our our whole soul makes us want to be part of this thing that is an offering to others. And it always has been. Um, The kind of things that are sacrifices, I mean, look, 50 years ago even, people were still being told, don't have a family. You can't have a family and do this if you're a woman. Are you crazy? Don't do that. Okay, Um, not true. (laughs) We can save that for later but also not true. Um, And, you know, there is great debt incurred. You know, there's great debt incurred in school, no matter what field you go into. But most fields, you have a decent shot at getting a job straight out of school. And with your great debt, you know that however long it's going to take you to pay it off, you will support yourself and hopefully go forward. There are no guarantees in what we do. The sacrifice is the precariousness of what we do. That's part of it. Um, We sometimes do have to put our personal lives on hold. That is a sacrifice, Mm -hmm. Um, you know? And if we don't, how do we balance our lives? That is very, very difficult. Um, I I can't speak to the men as I am not one, surprise. (laughs) I did a blowout so y'all know this is like my thing, (laughs) Not one today, um, but it's, it's different, I guess, I think for women and the interesting part about the whole nasty woman thing. Do we advocate for being that thing? To me, it's like the word diva. It used to be this, you know, it, it used to be this thing that was, we didn't want that. We didn't want that. Oh, you're acting like a diva. Now, diva. It means something different, right? So in the beginning, when somebody said, you're so nasty woman, and now it's like a badge of honor. Yeah, now it's like, oh, thank you. Thank you. But isn't it though? Because generally that means somebody has a problem with me standing up for myself or standing up for my daughters or standing up for someone who is not able to stand up for themselves. I am super good with that. I'll get the tattoo right here with the anchor. I'm good to go. (laughs) I, I, I love this. Thank you. Uh, and you know, since we've, just
0: touched on family, I kind of want to dovetail into that topic because I think that is, you know, for a lot of folks, one of those sacrifices, you know, we're, we're always interested in reassuring young singers that they can in fact have a family, have children and by giving insight into, you know, the singers that we talk with, their family structure, their support system, you know, how they navigated pregnancy candidly before and after with, with contracts either coming up or on the way or trying to get booked. We actually did a whole episode uh, for Mother's Day on this, but everybody's story is a little bit different. Um, Uh, So I would love to hear a little bit more about, about your story, what you would be comfortable sharing.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to share whatever you want to know. I, I knew I I never wanted to be a singer. Santa Fe swing. What? Uh, I (laughs) I never wanted to be a singer. It was not even in the furthest reaches of my mind. I was going to be a band director. I was going to, my big goal was to get married. Oh, yeah, I'm super band geek. I still have my bass clarinets put together right in the corner so I could practice Stop. later. <laughs> Stop it. I am also a banner. We're going to talk about that later. Off mic. Go ahead. Yes, okay. Let's do yes. it. Um, also captain of the color guard. So that got me lots of dates. Barry Sachs bass clarinet and color guard. I mean, I was, I was a majorette. We'll also talk about that. Oh, my goodness. But you got to wear the cool stuff. Sorry. But we're we're getting off topic. We'll talk about yes. that later when we talk family, about Family, family. Yes, okay. exactly i didn't ever want to be a singer and i didn't actually understand the huge project it was going to be right you know i mean the dumbest thing i ever did was think oh well they like my voice maybe i'll just be a singer (laughs) 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 oh my god that's the dumbest thing ever and then i realized what it entailed because honestly So I was raised Catholic and we all go through our little religion training classes and we got a book when we were preparing for our our first communion. And in the book, (laughs) there was a page that said, draw a picture of what you want to be when you grow up. (laughs) No children. So I drew myself working at Kentucky Fried Chicken because I thought I'd get free chicken. (laughs) (laughs) That's life goals right there, friends. Boom. Um, And then next to it, it was me going home to like 47 children. That's what I wanted: Kentucky Fried Chicken and kids. <laughs> that Set the bars are. Those that's are
4: how the magic food ends, so.
2: Yeah, I feel like that's right. I mean, oh my God, <laughs> I can I can be very happily be a spokesperson if anybody's looking for one. So fine, uh, pivot anyway. So um, I I always wanted to be a mom desperately, um, and the rest of it it all fell into my lap. I and I thought, you know. I went through college, I didn't really meet anybody. I'm now in the middle of this amazing career that's dropped into my lap. I mean, I worked really hard, but I didn't expect it. And I thought, you know what? Maybe this is what God's giving me instead and maybe this is what I'm supposed to be doing. So let's do it. So I did. And I still really wanted kids, but you know, for those, this is back to the sacrifice thing. You know, we put the blinders on when we are really starting our career to try and make this happen. And then the infamous bump in the road happened for me when my repertoire started to change and my voice changed. And I didn't know if I wanted to continue. And I thought, you know what? I have done so much and I didn't expect any of it. And I'm so proud of it. And maybe it's time to walk away before I feel bad about what I did. And maybe this is the time that I go get to have the rest of my life. Yeah. Okay. That's not a bad switch out, I'm good. I wasn't good. I was sad, but I thought, "Fine, let's go and find these things." And so I finally started dating at like thirty-two. So I really, didn't, and uh, I was terrible at it for a while. No, I was still. I was really bad at it the whole time. <laughs> but somebody was apparently stupid enough to grab me, so that's fine. Um, I I was online. We I met friends of friends, and uh, you know, I finally ended up in a situation that I thought. I think I get to have this now. Okay. And I met my husband and we got married and I remember I was so mad because six months had gone by and I wasn't pregnant yet. And he's like, you realize that might be an issue because we've been in the same place for six weeks. And I was like, do better. (laughs) (laughs) But like five minutes later, we were pregnant with our first and um, you know, it was, It was interesting. I was just starting to sort of transition into this bigger rep. And I had to give up um, an Elizabeth and my, the only Tom I've ever been offered and also a Dutchman. And I was never offered another one of those. Cool figure. Okay, fine. I got the most gorgeous, brilliant, fabulous, colicky baby. (laughs) And (laughs) I was not quite prepared for the, it takes a village and friends. It takes a village. Um, Your village can look like a million different things. If you have family, God bless. Uh, You have somebody who can come and help you out. Amazing. Uh, We didn't have a lot of family and we went through a series of au pairs and nannies and, they're all, these ladies are all still like my kids and they are all part of my family and they always will be. Um, But it it was a lot of work and it was difficult to try to find the balance of home and work. And in the beginning, the littles traveled with me. We had a conversation about school and what's going to be best for them. And my husband and I decided that it would be best for us to get to know the kids first to see, are they social? Do they need socialization around other kids? Is homeschooling a thing that might work well for them? And we decided for both my girls, they they do like the socialization and they do need one place to be. So that meant once school started, mom was off on her own and having to leave the kids at home, which was the it just my heart broke every single time I walked out the door and my children were reaching for me and I cried all the way to the airport and mm. I cried through TSA. I had to explain so many times to the TSA agents what was going on because they were like, "Um, and, you know, <laughs> I will say this. I thank God I started at a time when the Internet was a thing. Because without FaceTime, without with Zoom, we, we wouldn't exist right now. But without FaceTime, without Skype, I I don't know if I would have continued. And my daughters will say it is not the same as a hug. But yeah. <laughs> no, know it's true. I mean, I can't reach out and put my arms around my kids. But we talk twice a day, every day. And if it meant me having to get up at two o'clock in the morning to be with them on the ride to school, I would do that. And then I would get it for a half an hour, go back to sleep for another three hours or four hours or whatever it is. Um, But it was difficult and it was hard for me and it was hard for them. My husband and I, we knew in the beginning what the potential was for travel and being apart. And thank God we are both people that are good with being with each other and being without each other. And I think that's really important when you are in a relationship with somebody who has to travel for work. Um, and my, you know, my girls, they're so happy right now. I mean, it's not so great that mom's home for eight months, (laughs) (laughs) but they, they're mostly over the moon but they're also just new teenagers. And so they're either over the moon or they hate me. So I must be doing it right. <laughs> uh, I, if you've got tweens, yes, yes.
0: The fact that oh. they feel both ends of those emotions. Yeah, I would, uh, I'd say you're nailing it a little bit. Oh my bit. gosh, because hashtag the puberty. <laughs> uh-huh. Oh, it's real. It's, it's real. My niece is on her way and boy, howdy. Um <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I do want to rewind a couple of years um, just because I'm, I'm always curious. This part of the story always fascinates me. Um, when you think about the birth of your first child, can you tell me a little bit about your first role back? Do you remember yeah. what it
2: was? Yes. Uh, I do. Oh my gosh. I do because there wasn't a chance I was giving it up because nobody lets me do funny things and I'm really good at them. And three months after I had my first, I was scheduled to start rehearsals for Aliche at Opera Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And I don't care, I'm gonna say this, my manager will hate me, I don't care if you pay me with like a tuna fish sandwich, <laughs> I would turn up to sing Paul stuff. Mm-hmm. I love it, I love to have fun, I love to sing Aliche, so there was no way I was giving that up. And I'm like, okay, and it's also kind of an ensemble thing, it's a really good one first back in, I was so tired. (laughs) So, Maggie had colic. I was so terrified. First babies, we are a hot mess. Second babies were like, whatever, this was on the floor. Hold on. (laughs) Put that in your mouth. But the first baby, everything makes you want to jump out a window. You're like, oh my God, she's going to die. She picked up something from a neighbor's yard. I know. So, we went to the doctor with her at about three and a half weeks. I was like, she's not sleeping. I don't know what's happening. I I don't know. And she goes, Oh, right on schedule. And I said, for what? She goes, the C word. And I go, she has cancer. (laughs) She said, colic, colic. She has colic. And I was like, Oh my God. I didn't sleep for three months. My husband and I took shifts. Um, He had to go to work. He would take a five hour shift at night or a four hour shift at night so that I could sleep. And then I let him sleep for four hours and he went to work and I was with her all day. She cried all the time, poor baby. Colic, no joke. So colicky baby mamas and dads, namaste. Uh, it's, I was so tired and I was terrified because she was howling and we had to stay in corporate housing. And the day before we left, it just stopped. She was like, whoo, that's over, What's up? <laughs> Like, Who the hell are you where's my child? So I went down there. I was exhausted, but I was sleeping for the first time in three months. And it was, oh gosh, it was amazing. I had so much support from my colleagues. And that's the part I wasn't quite sure what would happen. You know, I mean, we all panic about what does it mean to be a mother now? And not only a mother, a mother who brings their kid to a gig. And mine just like turned up at lunchtime in her stroller with my mother at the time. She's like, bitter, bitter, bitter. there you go. They were 100% in my corner. They were there to help. They were there. Do you need anything? All of my colleagues as well. Um, the singing part of it, I was pleased and surprised to find that it. I was 100% there. Now I had C-sections. Um, I did try, God bless. But we just unzipped and got her out. Boom, done, both of them. But it was three months I had to recover from an operation and um, my doctor was amazing. I was terrified because that was the thing I said, as a singer, I didn't want a C-section. And she said, why not? And I said, because those muscles pay my mortgage. Mm -hmm. And she goes, if I swear to you that I will move them apart by hand, I know what you do. Will you let me go get your daughter? And I went, (laughs) yes. She's still my doctor um, and she delivered the other one too. And she most certainly did, she was super careful. And so this is the thing, I will always tell ladies who are pregnant and, and you're scared about what's gonna go on, have the conversation, have that conversation with your doctor. It's it's not a big deal either way. Um, and I, I went back in feeling like, you know, I was so grateful to have everything, but here's the thing. <laughs> Be careful what you wish for, because you might get it. And then you have to figure out what to do with everything. And uh, that is an ongoing process. Every single day we navigate that here in my house. Mm
1: -hmm. But we Mm -hmm.
2: all talk about everything. I get an offer, dinner table, we talk about it. So, I mean, it, it has to be a family affair at this point, you know?
4: Well, I'm glad the family okayed this interview. Um, (laughs) I'm I'm sorry that we have to like take a pivot here, but uh, I want to get to this topic. I remember waking up, I forget exactly what day it was, but, um, you know, just scrolling through Facebook, like the morning, like try to get myself out of bed. And there you were uh, in Lincoln Center Plaza, singing up shortly, sure. And I was like, okay, this is happening. And I knew that you were going to be doing something because you were like talking about it, but I know exactly what it was going to end up being. And I'm watching this thing. And I I remember getting out of bed that morning. I was like, okay, we can do this. We're going to face the world,
2: (laughs) you know?
3: Mit Leute nicht
2: mehr Tiger auch
4: wie Meeresbogen. Can you talk about, I mean, it was very cathartic, so thank you. Um, Why you chose that area. I mean, I have my own ideas by why you chose it, but I'd love to hear it from you.
2: So um, first of all, I'm so glad that it helped. Um, I didn't didn't expect the amount of catharsis that came out of hurling all of that out into the, you know, five block area around Lincoln Center (laughs) that day myself. And we did it like four times. And so I was like, either everybody in this area is going to know the aria by the time we're done (laughs) or we're going to have an angry mob. (laughs) Um, Why did I pick it? So I was lucky enough, actually I'm laughing because I'm sitting at my piano right now and I was cleaning things out and I I pulled up my little envelope just now and I don't know if you can. So Mm -hmm. this this is my little packet of pictures from the... uh... (laughs) I did one of um, Justice Ginsburg put together um, um, musical, you know, as a little soiree every year uh, for the Supreme Court and invited people to come and sing and she invited me to sing this year, last year in November, so, oh my gosh, it was almost a year ago, and uh, she (laughs) She, I was just sort of saying, these are the dates, these are the things, who are you bringing? You know, what are the people involved? What is happening here? I have a little ski jump going on. <laughs> <laughs> it's a swoosh, it's a swoosh. It's a little 1970s Farah. we'll run with it. Um, I support. I, I do too. So uh, I wrote back and I said, what are her favorite things? And I said, what do you mean? And I said, she's invited me to do this. What are, what, what are her favorite pieces? Can I incorporate these pieces in the program? What does she love? And they came back and said, well, she loves Strauss and she loves, um, she loves Fidelio. And I thought, I can't do it, it's too long. I'm doing this with Luca Pizaroni, and we've got to find something to do together. And we ended up doing uh, the duet, well, the, the melodrama with Rocco and Leonora at the beginning of the second act. Not really, it's after, well, yeah, the tenor has an aria, but whatever. So, um, (laughs) uh, something about the dark. Um, And uh, I thought, right, when they contacted me from Lincoln Center and asked me to be a part of a tribute, I said, I thought there's no, there's nothing else I should be doing. Absolutely nothing. And nothing speaks more to this woman's legacy than standing up for people who cannot stand up for themselves and for Doing something, even though it's difficult and scary because it's right. And to go places where you are not invited. Even if it means you have to sneak in. <laughs> and I thought, I'm going to start getting all misty again. This um too late. <laughs> Damn it. Estrogen. Um, it's uh, this was everything that the woman stood for. And I, I, I don't think I have the picture of my daughters with her, but um, she allowed my daughters to come into her, her chambers and to meet her. I'm looking through my little pictures here to see what I've got.
3: These
2: are good. <laughs> These make me laugh. Okay, tall people. I gosh. <laughs> it's like Fuzzle, Fafner, Ruth, and whoever else happens to be standing there. <laughs> and uh, here's another. Oh, Just-
1: With Craig.
2: I know I, I'm looking at a handwritten note from her, which I'm not going to hold up because I'll start crying again. Oh, but um, I, I was really scared because I swore I didn't want to sing that one again. It was, it was a lot. And I, I, the last time I did it, it was too close. And, you know, I, it's, it's not really a shock to everybody that I am like super bleeding heart liberal, but I have seen, the, the scariest thing that's happened to, to this country, I think in the last four years is the division and the intolerance of other people's opinions. And I am as guilty of it as anybody at, because emotions are running so high. And the last time I sang Fidelio, I was like, I can't do this anymore right now. It's too close. It's too scary. Yeah. And I want to do better. So yeah. I'm going to step away from this, but I knew it was the only piece that I could possibly do for her. And By the way, it's really hard to sing!
4: You know, I was, I just wanted to say, cause A, it's a, b- a ridiculous aria. It's impossible. It's
1: ridiculous.
0: It's yeah. so <laughs> insane. But, by a but, it's guy. Insane.
4: but B, like, how do you sing that without an acoustic? How do you sing that in open air without yeah. knowing?
2: Outside. Can okay, give but us <laughs> actually, I will tell you, I was terrified about that as well. So walking out there, first of all, all of the, the feels from walking out on the plaza, I hadn't been there in six months. And walking up there and seeing all the lights out and burlap bags, everything's outside and just you know, barricades everywhere. I just like, part of me wanted to throw up, part of me wanted to hug every building. Um, and then I was terrified because the aria is hard. It's really, it's high profile. It's for Ruth. I wanna do the best that I possibly can. This woman is going to be my personal superhero in forever. And so then I said, right now, I don't have any idea what the acoustic is going to be like. And they're like, here's a microphone. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> 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 great, let's go. Um, it turns out that three giant stone buildings in the shape of an amphitheater work like an amphitheater. Oh, wow. Awesome. Um, I hurled out that in the rehearsal, that first abscheulicher. I, with such vehemence, and I was so angry, and I stopped afterwards and it came back from like five blocks away. And I thought, even if I sound like crap, this is totally gonna be worth it. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I was greatly surprised. Lincoln Center keeps surprising me. We have lots of outdoor areas that things can happen. Now I realize I woke up this morning, the wind chill was 28 and nobody wants to be hanging out outside. (laughs) But, uh, you know, having just completed one of the, the tours of the one of the great parking garages of North America. I'm um, so glad
4: you brought that up. So <laughs>
2: we, <laughs> but, we, we can do stuff outside. I think we just have to find the ways to make that happen right
4: Yeah. Now. Well, this we have to wrap this up, but I do want to get oh, a preview. I want to get a preview of this Yuval Sharon Twilight Gods. And I don't know if you saw it yet, but in the current issue of The New Yorker, which I think goes to print like next week, Um, It's reviewed by Alex Ross. Did you see that yet? (laughs) I did, and I knew that
2: Alex was there and I was so excited that he, I mean, I knew that people were traveling from Mm. states away. That's a huge thing right now for people to travel.
4: To get in a car.
2: (laughs) Right? But I tell you what, it was very interesting. Um, I don't read reviews. It's like a thing of mine.
4: Yeah, I but it's read, Alex review. Ross, come on.
2: <laughs> okay, it's Alex Ross, who I actually, he's like one of my heroes. Okay. Um, I got the book and everything. Um, and uh, I I was so, so happy. And Yuval sent me a little note saying that he had been in touch and said he thought it was awesome. And he goes, good sign, good sign. I was like, good sign. But I I was so excited about this. And when they approached me about the project, um, I didn't know a bunch of things. He's like, you know, we're thinking about this. And I said, I'm in. He goes, I didn't tell you the rest. And I said, don't care. <laughs> we're doing a thing. You guys are courageous enough to try something. I'm there. Let's do it. And all of these things started coming in. Well, we're going to do this here. Well, you're going to be outside. Well, it's going to be the top floor. We don't know if there's going to be any cover for the weather. Fine. In fact, <laughs> this was not the one that Alex was at, but there was the Sunday evening performance we looked at the weather and thought, oh God, you know, everybody else is on a lower level, so it's no problem, but I am out in the open air on the top of this thing. And uh, they said, okay, there's a thunderstorm coming in. And I said, do we know if it's a thunderstorm or just a storm? They said, no. And I said, right. Okay, well, I have an earpiece because I have to hear the band and I have a mic on so they can go to the cars. So am I going to get electrocuted if I get wet? And they said, no. And I said, do it. <laughs> My friend happened to be in this rotation. I got up there and it started pouring and I kept going. And he said, I didn't know if I should wish for less rain or more rain. It was like the Elmer fun part of what's opera doc, North wind blow, South wind blow, smog, it was the most amazing thing. And I have never had so much fun in my life.
4: Well, Chicago audiences are in for a treat. I cannot wait to see this thing. And you have like the new pull quote for your press packet. Christine Gerke in the role of Brunhilde summoned all the vocal heft and emotional force that she has brought to conventional stage outings. And she showed an extra glint of glee as she jumped into the Mustang to ride onto the metaphorical pyre. (laughs) Listen,
2: if you're going to go for a pyre, get in a Mustang. That's what I have to say. (laughs)
4: Well, I mean, I think it's a very interesting way to conclude your experience of the ring in Chicago and I wish we had time to talk about the David Poutney ring which you were just about to complete. Yeah, uh,
2: another time.
4: Yeah. <laughs> um, you're a nasty woman, Miss Gergen. That's how
2: I do. It's how in I the do. best ways <laughs> badge <laughs> of honor.
4: It's badge been honor. So, so great to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on to Upper Box Score.
2: It's a total pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Good call, bad call on opera box score.
1: All right, good call, bad call to wrap up the show. As always, I've just started season two of Ted Lasso. Yes, I know I'm behind Matt, and it's just as brilliant as ever. That's on the Apple Plus platform. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com on Facebook. Search for Opera Box Score. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at Opera Box Score. Help us deepen the bench of listeners by liking and sharing our social media posts. Email us your hot takes. And what you want to see in Season 7, just write to us, operaboxscore at gmail.com. You can always subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher or just smash the favorite button on Apple Podcasts. The views and opinions expressed on Opera Box Score are solely those of the show's creative team. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of the accounts of this show without the express written consent of Opera Box Score is probably not a good idea. It's a great idea! Our creative consultants, Oliver Camacho, our audio and video editors, Weston Williams. For your co hosts, Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you snatch the last few moments of summer. We're back with another podcast show next week when I don't know if I should say any more than tag team tenors plus you get more opera headlines more hot takes and more hot stuff baby tonight. Join us.